Well then, with a view to the help and guidance of God, let's uh, turn again to that passage in Matthew chapter 26. And the words that we were looking at this morning. And towards the end of verse 63, uh, the high priest brings this trial to a close effectively by putting Christ under oath. So reading halfway through the verse, he said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, when returning to this passage, we're picking up essentially where we left off in the morning. And uh, you'll remember that at that point the trial of our Lord was in danger of collapsing. And it was collapsing because the witnesses that were looked for and found at the last minute were inconsistent with themselves and the examination of them proved that. And of course Judas Iscariot himself was not there. I suppose they would have expected that the one who had betrayed the Lord would be the chief witness in the trial, but uh, remorse has taken hold of Judas, and of course he has gone out and hanged himself. So far from completing this betrayal by being a participant in the trial, he has gone, as the scripture solemnly says, to his own place. These are awful and pregnant words. We're told that he went out into the night and he went out to his own place. We all have an eternal place, either in brightness, in blessedness in heaven, or else in the darkness and in the cursedness of hell. But at this particular point, Caiaphas is running out of time. He is the one responsible for convening the Sanhedrin He is the one who is pushing to have this man executed before the Passover itself is finished. And he needs two trials, uh, which both have to be on different days. This one is at the close of the night. His plan is to finish the trial and to immediately keep the letter of the law and reconvene on the following morning to formalize it. But he's running out of time. Uh, It's nearly morning, and as well as that, he's running out of options too. But it's at that point, and this is where I left things this morning, it's at that point that uh, he pulls out what you could only describe as a masterstroke, at least from his own perspective, because he stands up in the full majesty of his office as the high priest, and he puts Christ on oath. And you'll remember from the morning... An oath is um, something more than a promise. A promise is between two people. An oath uh, calls God into whatever is said and done. It calls God in as a witness, to witness the truth 
of what we say or promise and to deal with us accordingly. And oaths are always administered, well, they're usually administered in courts, either in the courts of the church or in the courts of the state, which are God's two great governmental institutions upon the earth. And in both of them, oaths are administered. And whenever they are administered, as I said, God comes into the picture. He is a solemn witness to what is said, and he deals with the people on the basis of what has been promised. That is what elevates the promise to the status of an oath. Now, when the high priest in the court puts the Lord Jesus Christ on oath, that is a a reason why the Lord at last has to speak. Right up to now, he's been silent in front of Caiaphas. He has nothing to say anyway. What can be said to uh, shambolic accusations that are um, inconsistent with each other and all of them untrue. But once the oath is put to him, he has to respond to it. The Old Testament is clear on that. You find an example in 1 Kings 8. You find an example in Nehemiah 5. You find an example in Leviticus 5. When an oath is put by an authority, you have to answer. Uh, You can't plead the Fifth Amendment. You can't be silent. You can't protect yourself in that respect. A lawful oath means that you have to respond. And our own uh, confession of faith makes that plain too. A lawful oath is part of religious worship, wherein on a just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness what he asserts or promises, and to judge him on the basis of the truth or falsehood of what he swears. It goes on to say that in matters of weight, An oath is warranted by the word of God. In other words, it's lawful to take it. More than that, a lawful oath being imposed by a lawful authority ought to be taken. So that is the confession directly appealing to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, which say that when an oath is put to you in a lawful court, then you are bound to answer that oath. So from this point, our Lord Jesus Christ has to speak. Now, there is a way, um, in fairness, I think, in which you could still question the legitimacy of what the high priest is doing, because no charge has been made. Uh, The man is exasperated. The case is collapsing. It's nearly six o'clock in the morning. It's nearly the following day. He's got to move, and to move quickly. Um, So he's really, in some respects, acting irregularly by standing up and putting the man on oath when no real proper charge has been made. But it's not as simple as that. The Lord Jesus Christ knows that what Caiaphas has said is effectively a charge. When he puts him on oath, the oath that he puts him under is just this, that you tell us, he says, tell us, By the living God, as sure as he is your witness and mine, trusting his judgment and his justice, you tell us if you are indeed the Messiah, the Christ, and are you the Son 
of the living God. Now, when Caiaphas says that, and when he says exactly that, and chooses to put it in that way, he's been clever enough. He hasn't got where he is by not being clever in an age of manipulators and uh, ecclesiastical politicians. Caiaphas effectively has said to himself, he's been listening to the proceedings, and he said, this is going nowhere. We can forget this law in that way, that law. We can forget questions of taxation and Roman authorities and buildings and temples and sacrifices. Forget the whole lot. What we need to do is focus on who you are, who you think you are, who you claim yourself to be. And once that's out in the open, it's an open and shut case. We can bring the trial to the close and we can ratify it tomorrow. And that's effectively what he asks the Lord. Leave aside all questions about, did you say you would knock down the temple? Did you say you would rebuild it in three days? Who are you? Who are you? Who do you think yourself to be? Of course, it's interesting in another way that he should put the question like that, because this is the question. There are lots of ways in which you can look at the life of Christ. There's lots of ways in which you can access his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, and all these things. You can assess the history of the Christian church down through the sweep of the years. You can assess assess Christian people and what they say or do, their life and their testimony. You can assess, assess all that. You can study it. You can evaluate it. But at the end of the day, the question that comes back to you is the question that was asked in Scripture itself, what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? Who is he at all? Is he a man? If he's a man, is he a mere man? Is he anything more than that? Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he a man of God? In what sense is he a man of God? Is he more than a man of God? Did he have a pre-existence? Was he around in this world before he appeared in this world? Did he indeed come down from heaven? Is he who he claimed to be? I mean, if he is, nothing's the same, is it? Nothing can be the same. If the claims of Christ are true, you just can't go home and just live another day as though it was another day. If Christ is who he said he is, then the word that he spoke is true in connection with everything. What he says in connection with heaven is true. What he says solemnly in connection with hell is true. You may have heard people say quite often that Most of the teaching in the Bible about hell comes directly from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is absolutely true. Nobody else spoke as much about hell as the Lord Jesus Christ did. And if he is who he is, and if he's telling the truth, we're in trouble. Unless we embrace the good news that he came to bring. And really that's the issue that Caiaphas himself focuses on. But, of course, he's wise enough as a politician to do exactly that. Why? Because he wants to push for the death penalty. As we saw in the morning, he wants this man out of the way. The rest of the Sanhedrin wants this man out of the way. As far as they're concerned, he's going to destroy their nation, their custom, their religion, their habits, their principles, going to wipe out their history. Everything's over. If he's any more successful than he is, everyone will follow him. And the Roman authorities will crush them to nothing. They will interpret that as a rebellion. 
On the other hand, if he can admit to these charges, which he feels he has to, then they can push for the death penalty. They can tell the Roman authorities that he has violated their most solemn and sacred laws. What's more, by claiming to be the son of God and a messianic figure, he is a direct challenge to the emperor, who is supposed to be lord of all, and so the Roman authorities will have little choice but to put him to death. You'll remember that the Jewish people had lost the power of capital punishment, and so only by making an effective prosecution in the Roman courts can they put this man to death. So Caiaphas is evil, but Caiaphas is clever. And there's no denying from a political point of view that the stroke that he has come up with is a master stroke. Although in spiritual matters it's far from that. He's sealing his own doom. This is a man who is instrumental in crucifying the Lord of glory. This is a man who is very, very religious, but completely unspiritual. A man who is face to face with God and doesn't recognize him at all. Face to face with Christ and doesn't recognize him at all. Now, when Caiaphas puts the question to him, tell us, he says, are you the Messiah? Well, he knows fine that Christ has claimed that. Christ has never had to testify to it in a court of law, but now he's going to ask him to do exactly that. What's more, you'll notice that he adds, and are you the son of God? Claiming to be the Messiah wasn't itself a capital offence, but claiming to be the son of God was. Why? Well, again, because Caiaphas knows that when the Lord Jesus Christ is claiming to be the Son of God, he's claiming to be the Son of God in a quite unique sense. Sometimes in the Bible, the angels are called sons of God because God created them and he created them as moral, spiritual creatures in his own likeness. We're told that when God brought the universe into being, we're told that the sons of God rejoiced to see it. They rejoiced to see the creative work of God bringing the worlds into being, demonstrating God's power and his glory. Sons of God. If you are Christians here tonight, you are also sons of God. The name sons there technically embraces daughters too. So you are sons and daughters of God. And you are sons and daughters of God by adoption. You have been brought into the family of God and Jesus Christ has become your elder brother and God is now your father. So angels are legitimately the sons of God. Christian people are legitimately called the sons of God. But Caiaphas knows that when Christ is claiming to be the Son of God, he's not claiming to be an angelic figure. Neither is he claiming in any sense simply to be a believer in God or someone who has been brought into a special relationship to God. Caiaphas knows that it's way, way beyond that. Christ knows, sorry, Caiaphas knows that when Christ claims to be a Son of God, he is actually claiming to be a son by generation. 
sharing the same essence, so that the God who produces him is producing a God. If I can speak uh, just in those terms of God producing him or begetting him. He is the only begotten son, not by adoption, not by any other method, but by eternal generation. In other words, the father and the son have always existed together in that relationship. There's no time factor in it, simply a relationship of father and son stretching back into eternity in which the same essence is shared. We don't become gods when we become Christians. We are not divine. We haven't become little gods, although the Mormons teach something like that. Um, We remain people, men and women in God's family. But the nature that the Lord Jesus Christ possesses is actually the divine nature. He is God's son by eternal generation. Just as a human produces a human, just as dogs produce dogs and horses produce horses, so God generates God. The Son of God is not less than himself. He shares the same divine nature. Now, the Jews recognize that. If you can, it's, it's easy for you to turn forward in your Bibles to John chapter 5, for example. I'll take a couple of examples of this for you. But if you turn forward to John 5, page 1643, and uh, in verse 16, we read that for this reason, that's because Christ had healed a person on the Sabbath. The Jews found fault with that, which is quite astonishing, because by By healing a person on the Sabbath, the Lord is actually not simply healing them. He was enabling them even to attend the synagogue, something that they were unable to do. So they sought to kill him, first of all, because he did these things on the Sabbath. In verse 17, Jesus answered them and said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. So here's this relationship with his father coming to the fore. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, that of course is in their eyes, he didn't actually, but in their eyes he broke it, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now down in verse 20, Jesus says that the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them. Now, there's no um, work that highlights uh, the power of divinity like that. I mean, only God can actually raise the dead and give life. God is the author of life, nobody else is. But astonishingly, read on in verse 21, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. It's an astonishing statement. He says himself that he will give life to whomever he will. For the Father, he says, judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not 
honour the Father who sent him. Now, if you go forward to chapter 10, these things come to a head. They're very much aware that the kind of sonship he's claiming is a very unique one. John 10 and verse 17. And he speaks here about calling his own sheep uh, to follow himself. And in verse 17 he says this. This is John 10, 17. Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received of my father. And then go down to verse 29, where his language rises higher. Talking again about the sheep that his father gave him. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. He had just said, by the way, that no one could snatch them out of his own hand. And here he says that no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. I and my Father are one. What kind of oneness? Well, the Jews know fine well what kind of oneness he's talking about. It's not simply that they're doing the same thing, but that they are essentially the same. They have the same mission. They have the same power. They have the same purpose. They are operating in absolute tandem. Not one thing is done by one without the other. That is what the Greek theologians used to call, it's a fancy Greek word, but it's called a perichoresis, which means a, a mutual indwelling of each person inside the other. So that in that respect you cannot separate them. You'll notice in verse 31, immediately the Jews took up stones to stone him. Why? If all he has said is that, well, um, we're on the same wavelength, there's no need to stone him. Every believer is on, respectfully, the same wavelength as God. No, they know he's claiming more than that. So they took up stones to stone him. And you'll notice in verse 32 that Jesus answers them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him and said, We don't stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. They knew that. And of course they were right. They were right. They understood what Jesus said. It's an interesting thing that Jehovah's Witnesses will always say that Christ never really claimed to be God. He claimed to be the first amongst all the creatures, but that he never really claimed to be God. Well, friends, he absolutely did. And he did in many different ways and at different times. I suppose the one that uh, impressed myself most at a certain time and still sticks with me most 
is uh, when he was speaking about Abraham. Um, Abraham looking forward through the centuries and seeing Christ's coming into the world. And he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not 50. You're not even 50 years old. And you claim to have seen Abraham. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. What a remarkable statement that was. Before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't... By the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own version of the Bible, which is different from any other. And there they translate, before Abraham was, I have been. The only problem with that is that that's not what it says. What it says is absolutely, I am. It's interesting that he doesn't say, I have been. He doesn't say, before Abraham uh, was, I was. Or before Abraham was, I have been, but before Abraham was, I am. What does I am mean to you? I am means the name Jehovah. It's the name that God revealed as belonging to himself, his own distinctive personal name. In that, the Jehovah's Witnesses are for a change right. It is his own distinctive personal name that belongs to nobody else. But the Lord takes it to himself. That's my name, he says. Before Abraham was, I am. I always have been. I still am and I always will be because I am timeless and transcendent. In an absolute miracle, I am here amongst you as a man in time. But even as I speak to you as a man in time, my infinite divine essence remains everywhere unchanged as it always is. And always will be. The Jews knew exactly what the Lord was claiming about himself. Hence the stones to kill him for blasphemy. And make no mistake, if the Lord is not God, he was a blasphemer. I say that respectively and with reverence. And I say it that way because he was no blasphemer. Because what he spoke was the truth. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. So Caiaphas' intention here, when he asks him point blank, are you the Messiah? And, he says, don't just say yes to that, but are you the Son of God? His intention is to get him on a charge of blasphemy and to bring him into trouble with Rome. Now Christ has to answer. And when you go on oath to answer a question, well, if you go... I don't know if if it's done exactly like this. I I meant to look this up and I forgot. Um, But when you take an oath, certainly the form of it used to be that you would promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That is absolutely what uh, the law did require. And our own confession reminds us too that that is still the way in which a person has to Uh, to swear. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words. That's very important, by the way. Um, 
When you take an oath, you're to take it in the sense that it is understood by the people giving it, as well as the sense in which you are, you are taking it. It has to be understood all round in the plain and common sense of the words. An oath should never be vague. Without equivocation, that means uh, no ambiguity of language. Nothing in your response should be ambiguous. Without mental reservation. In other words, you don't take an oath with your fingers crossed behind your back. You don't take it in a way that used to be associated with the Jesuits because the Jesuits taught that you could say anything if it was for a good cause. So if you were going to further the cause, for example, of the Roman Catholic counter-reformation, it was okay to lie. It was officially okay to lie. It was officially okay to lie under oath because there was mental reservation. In other words, you were saying to God effectively, well, Lord, I'm only saying this for the benefit of your cause, and so that makes it okay to say it. It doesn't make it okay to say it. Absolutely not. That is a travesty of an oath. So it is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation, that's with clarity, and without mental reservation. It can't oblige you to sin, I'll look at that next week, God willing, but being taken, it binds you to performance, even if it is to your own heart. And it is not to be violated, even if it is made to unbelievers or infidels. So it's got to be honest. And the person swearing calls God to witness what he asserts or promises, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of that. And that's what lies before the Lord Jesus. And how does he respond? Well, if you go back to our text in Matthew 26, and in verse 64, Jesus says, it is as you said. The question, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus says, it is as you said. You'll notice that the first three words there in your Bible are written in italics, which means that they don't actually appear in the Greek language. It's just they're provided by the translators there just to help us to make sense of it. So the expression simply is, you said. Now, some jump on that to say, oh, well, what he actually said was, you said. He didn't say yes. In things like that, um, you've got to watch idiom, how people speak. For example, um, I can actually affirm something to you by saying that you said it rather than myself. For example, if you ask me, uh, am I such and such, and if I said, you said it, you know fine well that I'm saying absolutely uh, put it in another language. Let's say in the Gaelic language, if you were asking a question, and I answered you by saying, well, you said it. In other words, I'm saying, you said it. That is the idiomatic force of these words in the Greek language. That is why the translators have put in the expression, it is as, it is as you said. Because he's not saying, oh, well, that's what you're saying. He's saying, you said it. That is absolutely who I am. And make no mistake, that that is what my teaching always has been. 
that I am none other than the Lord's anointed in this world. I am the Messiah, long ago promised, waited for and prayed for down through the years, sung about by the church in the Psalms down through the millennia. That's me. And as for my actual identity, who I am, what I am, I am indeed the Son of God. That's why he goes on to say, after this he he says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. But you'll notice the word nevertheless there in verse 64. Just to, to, to roll back a little bit, Caiaphas says, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says to him, you said it. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you'll see me sitting at the right hand of the power. Why does he say nevertheless? You would expect him to say over and above that or furthermore, I say to you, or to prove that to you, I'll say that you'll see me. Instead, he says, nevertheless. Nevertheless, what or why? Well, I think there's only one way to understand that. And that's because of the response of the people to what's just been said. The moment the Lord says, you said it, there must have been something like a sharp intake of breath. This is unbelievable. It shouldn't be unbelievable that somebody claims to be the Messiah because somebody has to be the Messiah. After all, he's got to come someday and he's going to be somebody. But the sharp intake of breath is because he's claiming still to be the Son of God. Not in a flight of rhetoric. Not as though he said something and he kind of just oversaid the thing or, or, or made an over-grand statement in the, in the middle of a sermon, in the middle of a synagogue or something of that kind. But here in a court of law, put on solemn sacred oath, in the presence of God and before these witnesses, Yes, he says, I'm the son of God. And if there was a sharp intake of breath, it's followed by a cacophony of noise. There's no way they're going to accept that. This is blasphemous. And as well as being blasphemous on their side, this is absurd. I mean, if sin is absurd to God, well, this statement is absurd to them. Do you really expect us to believe That you, at our mercy, in our hands, shortly, I suppose they would even add in their foolishness, God willing, you'll be put to death. You'll be left on a refuse heap. You'll be openly and obviously cursed by God as well as rejected by men. Are you expecting us seriously to believe that you're God on earth? Do you expect us to believe that? That's why the Lord says, nevertheless, in spite of your reaction, in spite of your treatment of me, in spite of what I know you're shortly going to do to me, says, nothing will change the fact that that is who I am. That is who he was. That is who he is today. He is still sitting at the right hand of the power And he is going to come one day 
who knows when, in the clouds of his Father's glory. It's an amazing thing because while on the, on the one hand it looks like a ridiculous claim to them for him to make, looks like a stupid thing, on the other hand, they're the fools. They're the fools. There's not one of them that couldn't point to chapters and verses in the Bible if you ask them to. There's not one of them that couldn't tell you what Isaiah had spoken about and Jeremiah had spoken about and what the prophets had stood for. Not one of them. But there is such a thing as not seeing the wood for the trees. There is such a thing as staring a thing in the face and not recognizing it. The fact of the matter is that these people are step by step enacting the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which we were reading. He was taken from judgment, from an arrest and from a tribunal. He was despised and rejected of men. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And here in the Sanhedrin, the process starts of slapping him across the head. That's going to end up with a body and a face that is mangled beyond the face and the features and the body of any man. They are fulfilling what the scripture says and yet they don't see it. It's the saddest thing in the world when you don't see what's staring you in the face. And I'll tell you, friend, all of you here tonight, if you are not Christians but you have heard the gospel, if you have had the privilege of knowing Christians, if you had have had the especial privilege of knowing people who were not Christians and who have powerfully become Christians with obviously transformed lives, that you too are staring something in the face and not seeing it, refusing to see it, although it is really as plain as day. Paul spoke of that when he was talking about his own native people, the Israelites, the Jewish people whom he loved so much, and as he said about the Corinthians, it was also true about the Jews that uh, the more he seemed to love them, the less he seemed to be loved by them. But Paul never lost his love for the people who were persecuting himself. And he said that the greatest desire in his heart was that they too would come to know the Saviour as he had come to know him. And he prayed for the veil to be taken off their faces so that when they read the Old Testament, they would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, what is it What is it that really makes sense of this Bible? Well, it's when you pl- place the life and character of Christ into it. If you take the Old Testament and you place the life and character of Christ in it, it's just like the light bulb going off. That's it. Except that the veil is on their faces and they don't see it. We read passages like Isaiah 53, we read the fulfillment of it in the gospel, and they say, well, how can't you see it? But how can't you see it? I can ask you that question, why don't you see this, and why don't you respond to it? But I know in my own heart that I saw it and didn't respond to it for years and years myself. And I know that were it not for the grace of God, I would not have responded to it, and I would not have seen it. That's how sick we are. That's how blind we are, and that's how terrible our condition is. And if even that thought itself has any effect on you, may it move you to prayer, even to say, Lord, I don't understand any of this. I, I'm, I'm miles away from it, 
But I'm beginning to think that maybe I need to know. So please show me how these things come together. And a, a, a humble childlike prayer will bring an answer. Why? Because as Christ said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, but you have revealed them unto babes. For so it seemed good in your sight. But Christ goes on to say something else. As well as saying, that's who I am, he immediately elaborates and says, afterwards he says, hereafter, you'll see two things, Caiaphas. And the you here is you plural, all of you. The Sanhedrin, my judges, supposedly. I'm saying to all of you that from now you'll see two things. First of all, you will see me raised to power because you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, capital P. Uh, Power was one of the names the Jews used to use for God. Sometimes when they wouldn't use his personal name, there are various names that they would use. For example, the Blessed One. Here is the power. The Lord seemed so powerless there. He seemed so powerless because that's what he emptied himself to for your sake and mine. That we shouldn't be deceived by these appearances. Hereafter, he says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. So that's the first thing you'll see. The second thing you'll see is the same Son of Man coming as a judge to judge the earth. You'll see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, both these statements are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. They're fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Christ is quoting from Daniel here. Daniel um, lived roughly 500 years before Christ's own birth. And in, in one of his visions, which we read we're told that one like the Son of Man. So this is, a, this is a person of human appearance. But he's actually coming into the presence of God in heaven. And he's coming with the clouds of God's judgment. He comes to the Ancient of Days. This is Daniel 7.13. And they brought him near before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days here is a, a, a reference to the Father. So they bring the Son, or one like the Son of Man, near before him, and there is given to him dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Of what size? What duration? Well, it's a cosmic kingdom, and it's an everlasting kingdom. So that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Now Christ is referring to that. It's interesting that he does. Caiaphas says, are you the son of God? Christ says, I'm the son of man. And you'll see the son of man at the right hand of the blessed. And you'll see him 
on clouds of heaven, or coming on clouds of heaven, which is a figurative expression in the Old Testament for judgment. You'll notice that Christ says this will happen hereafter. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter. That Greek expression means from now on. So it doesn't just mean in the future. I think it would be doing an injustice to the form of words that our Lord Jesus uses to be casting everything that he's prophesying way into the future. The actual force of the Greek is from this point onwards. In other words, something is being put in operation right here and now that is going to result not only in me at the right hand of the blessed and coming on the clouds of heaven, but you seeing it, Caiaphas, and you, the rest of you, on the Sanhedrin. What is it that you see? Well, I think it was fulfilled in more than one way. I think the first fulfillment of Christ's prophecy here just came 50 days after this. I don't know if you know what happened 50 days after this. But there was an earth-shattering event that took place 50 days. Fittingly enough, there was an earthquake to accompany it. What actually happened on this day was that the Holy Spirit was poured down from heaven upon the earth in a measure and in a portion that would stay in this world until the end of time. This is the advent of the third person of the Trinity. Not as though he had never been in the world before, but this is his advent in state. This is him being sent from glory, not by the Father, but by this man. Just 50 days from when he said this statement, here he is acting at the right hand of the blessed. When the apostles went out preaching in languages that they had never known before, uh, full of knowledge, full of zeal, some people thought they were drunk with new wine. And of course, Paul Peter, sorry, famously said to him that that's certainly not what had happened. He says, this Jesus, um, which you, he said, took and, and crucified, by lawless hands you took him and you crucified him. Well, he says, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now, there's members of the Sanhedrin listening to all this. And being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that means the promised Holy Spirit, so he's received the Spirit. Having received the promised Spirit, he has poured out this which you now see and hear. For David said, and you'll notice then that he switches to Psalm 110, Peter. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. And Peter closes his sermon. What a different Peter this is to the one who was weeping bitterly a few days before. Therefore, he says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he has made him both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? So in other words, that event 50 days later was the first evidence of Christ's lordship.
and Caiaphas sees it. And so do the rest. The second evidence is at Stephen's death. This is just a few months afterwards. Caiaphas was still high priest when the Sanhedrin took this young preacher and started to examine him. The examination lasted until the point where Stephen said that they are repeating the sins of their fathers by resisting the Holy Spirit and resisting the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told they put their fingers in their ears. In their rage, they gnashed their teeth. They carried him outside the city and they began to stone him. Famously, just before he died, Stephen fell on his knees and we're told that he saw the heavens opened and Christ standing at the right hand of God. Admittedly, he's standing here. Jesus said to Caiaphas that he would see him sitting. I don't know if Caiaphas saw the vision. Did God permit Caiaphas to see it? I don't know. One thing I do know is that Caiaphas heard Stephen say so. And what's more, we're told that the whole Sanhedrin, including Caiaphas, noticed Stephen's face. That it was like the face of an angelic being. There was a holiness and a radiance from it. Which essentially came. It was a glory that was communicated from the heaven which he was permitted to see. Heaven's a powerful place. Its glory is a powerful thing. If, if it was allowed to be itself by God, it would consume everything inside. And here it touches, just like the sun can touch her own skin and change its color. So the glory of God touched Stephen's skin. As he said to Caiaphas, I see the one that you condemned, and I see him at the right hand of the blessed. The third fulfillment is at Jerusalem's fall 40 years later. I don't know if Caiaphas was still alive at that point. I think we can be sure that several members of the Sanhedrin were. And you'll notice that Christ's promise was not just to Caiaphas, but to the whole Sanhedrin. When Jerusalem fell at the hands of the Romans in AD 70, that was the very thing that Caiaphas was trying to avoid. When they raised the temple to the ground, it was the very thing Caiaphas was trying to avoid. Put this man to death, we'll save the temple and the nation. Friends, we're always getting these things the wrong way around. You're going to have life by rejecting Christ. No, you won't. You're going to die a slow, agonizing death without hope and without God in the world. That's what you're going to do. Christ teaches you on the other hand that if you learn to self-deny and become a Christian, your life's going to open out. The life of the unbeliever narrows to oblivion. The life of the believer just widens out into the eternal weight of glory that awaits for us in heaven. Caiaphas thought he was rescuing the temple and the nation. No. Forty years later, it's raised to the ground. On whose authority? On Christ's authority. Forty years was probation. That's what forty always signifies. Christ says enough, and he does destroy the temple. In the meantime, he builds the temple of his church. The fourth fulfillment of this occurs when Caiaphas dies and when every single member of the Sanhedrin dies because then 
they absolutely see Christ at the right hand of the majesty on high. The fifth and last fulfillment of this is on the final day of judgment when everybody appears, body and soul, in the presence of God. And again, even they, Caiaphas' knee will bow and Caiaphas' tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or had he done it, had he done it on this day, his condition today would be different. Very, very different. But he didn't. You'll notice in closing that Christ says, or he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Caiaphas' question was, are you the Son of God? Christ says, absolutely. But you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Why does he put it like that? Well, again, I think it is something to do with the mockery that must have followed his affirmation. It's as much as to say, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, you remember that the figure in Daniel 7 who receives an everlasting kingdom is called the Son of Man. That's an indicator in the Old Testament that this divine figure is something more than divine. Mysteriously, he's something less than divine. He unites humanity and divinity to himself. Did Caiaphas understand Psalm 2? When the Messiah is anointed and we sang this, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten me. The man in front of you is the Son of God. The Son of God is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the Son of God. The response to all this is just a mixture of joy and outrage. Joy, why? Because he's admitted it. They can press for the capital punishment. Outrage, because they can't believe that this man actually claims to be Jehovah. They tore their clothes, which they were supposed to do on an occasion of severe blasphemy. It's not yet six o'clock. They can hastily convene in the morning. There's time to take him to Pilate, take him to the Roman authorities, and get the thing done. But for us right now today, we're thinking about oaths. Our Saviour went on oath, and he spoke the truth, and the whole truth, and Nothing but the truth. And let's strive to follow that example whenever we are placed on oath. Next time, God willing, I want to consider with you a vow, which is a promise made directly to God. And we'll consider one of the most strange vows in the Bible. Let us pray. Our gracious God, um, show us, we pray, the identity of your blessed Son, to whom you have testified, and who is still being preached throughout the length and breadth of this world. And we rejoice on this Sabbath day that Christ, at your right hand, is seeing the very fruit of his own suffering, and he rejoices in that. And so do the saints of God, They rejoice also in glory that the King whom they know and love 
is still being preached. The angels who are in our own assemblies of worship, they rejoice too that the Lord is being preached. And how much joy it would give in heaven itself if even one sinner amongst ourselves tonight were to be converted and drawn to this Lord and Saviour. Oh, that we would confess him now in grace on the earth before we are constrained to confess him under judgment at the door of hell itself. Have mercy upon us. Open our eyes to see ourselves and our Saviour. In Christ's name, Amen. Our last psalm is in Psalm 72. Psalm 72. I can just change the singing. He will just sing from 8 to 10. The three stanzas from 8 to 10. Which describes the kingdom of Christ as large and great dominion shall from sea to sea extend. It from the river shall reach forth unto earth's utmost end. Caiaphas had no clue that this kingdom belonged to the man in front of him. And in verse 10, the kings of Tarshish, that's Spain and the Isles, that actually includes ourselves in the British Isles, to him shall presents bring, and unto him shall offer gifts, Sheba's and Seba's king. Uh, 8 to 10, uh, we stand to sing.